episode 184, Cytopathologist and FNA Specialist. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're Dr. Selena Nadelman's Perspective. Award-winning podcast host and best-selling author, Dr. Justin Trosclair, as we go behind the curtain and talk to doctors and experts about their specialty, marketing, and home life balance. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Hey, welcome back to the show. Today is fun because it's one of those interviews where you're not exactly sure where it's going to go when you book the person. And then you learn about a whole new field of medicine that you kind of know about, but not really. And then you find out there's all these complex layers involved with it. And so that's this one. She's a pathologist, but really she's a cytopathologist. She does fine needle aspirations. And she has a private practice, which apparently was super rare there's maybe like a dozen in the entire nation so i hope this will be a fun episode while you drive while you work out whatever it is that you're doing as always if you go to a doctorsperspective.net slash all links you can get everything you need from the multiple series that we've done like on acupuncture financial podiatry best episodes of each year etc And if you'd be so kind to buy some swag or even tip me a cup of coffee, that grows a long way to kind of just feel the love, keep making these episodes. And I really appreciate you listening, of course, and writing these five-star reviews, which I don't have enough of. So if you find it in your heart to do it, go for it. But look, the transcript and all the show notes can be found at adoctorsperspective.net slash 184. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from Beverly Hills in Louisiana, today on the show, we have got a unique specialty that I had actually never really heard of, and uh, there's a good chance that you don't either. So she graduated from the USC Kirk School of Medicine, all right? She lived in Italy for three years. She was an art student. Can you believe that? And studied it for like three years, and then, you know, we'll figure out what happened there because that's a completely different uh, ball of wax, if you will. But uh, her... Her expertise is fine needle aspiration. It's called FNA. It's um, it, it's a whole thing. So it's gonna be fun to dive into what this means. Uh, I don't want to jump too much into it, but she wants to be a compassionate, patient-centered environment while engaging in open and immediate communication with the referring doctor and actually be there when we do the biopsy to get the most complete picture. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Selena Nadelman. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well. Thank you for being on the show, and I hope I didn't butcher that too much in there, but uh, what's the background? Because I thought, I mean, that's really cool, like an art, and then studying, and then somehow switched into medicine. So how'd that play out? I actually started out in psychology. Um, I went to I mean, I went to Clark University, which was like, it's very, very big on studying psychology. In fact, it's the only university that, that Freud uh, came to when he came to the United States and lectured at. Freud and Jung it has a very long history of psychology and I soon got interested in like psychobio uh, neuroscience and I was always interested in art I'm a very like creative artistic person and I I took a couple of classes and then I decided to go for my junior year abroad to to Florence Italy and there I took Italian as well as art and art history classes and when I came back, I realized that I could actually turn it into a double major. So I was actually a d- double major in psychology and studio art with a minor in biology. 
I fell in love with the country. I didn't really know if I wanted to go into the artistic field or into the scientific field. You know, a lot of people find that medicine is an art and a science. So I guess it kind of melds together that I eventually did become an MD, a physician. But while I was in, uh, I, I went back to live in Rome. I went to an academy of decorative and restorative arts. I thought that maybe I would go into that. Um, you know, it was a big thing, you know, fake marbling and restoration. Uh, but in the meantime, I was still interested in neuroscience. So I was matriculated through the University of Rome La Sapienza. And I did an internship, a research inter- internship with two professors there who were doing neuroscience uh, research on, you know, stroke victims as well as dementia patients. And then I decided to come back and, and go into medical school. Well, it really could have went either way because I'm thinking a restorative art would have kind of taken you on a life, a life path with a lot of adventure and seeing amazing things. But ultimately, I guess, you know, that could be always a, a retirement plan or a second <laughs> career. <laughs> I'm going to get back into this. Okay. So there's lots of specialties out there. You could have just been Joe Smo pathologist, but then you took it to the next level. Well, yeah, actually, you know, my life kind of always had like a circuitous route. Like I didn't, and I tell this to even when I go and speak at like high schools or colleges, I I, I try and impress uh, young uh, people that that nothing is written in stone. Like I thought, you know, all my friends who went into medicine, they'd wanted to be you know go to medical school since they were like in kindergarten. Well, I didn't. And they knew exactly within their first or second year what specialty they wanted to go into. And I didn't. I wanted one specialty. And then I actually went into internal medicine. Hmm. I did a year of internal medicine at the VA, uh, UCLA program, and discovered that although I like, you know, patient, dealing with patients, I it was not for me. It was not my, I didn't feel like this was my home. And did actually research in dermatology and wound healing and then I had always liked pathology uh, in medical school. It was taught fantastically well at USC. Pathologists were all really nice and very knowledgeable. But when I was going to medical school, the, the great push was to go into primary care. I mean, everybody was supposed to go into primary care, which was, you know, internal medicine or family practice, pediatrics, gynecology. Some general surgery, but no subspecialties. And I did a sub I. Is that what they needed back then? Yes. Yeah. You know, it was very, it was all primary care. And when I had done a sub I in pathology, I enjoyed it, but everybody was like, don't go into it. There are no jobs. So after my research fellowship, uh, after my internship, I kind of fell into pathology. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My husband at the time had decided to go back to school. He had gone to medical school in the Soviet Union and decided to go back and get a Chinese medical degree. So he was getting his OMDs, you know, master's in oriental medicine. And so I had to choose a program that was in Los Angeles. And there were openings in specific areas, and one of them was pathology and one of my mom's friends was a pathologist. He was like the chief pathology at one of the major hospitals here in Los Angeles. He was like the president of the you know, College of American Pathology. He was very, very involved. And he said, why don't you just try it? You know, I, it's a, I love it. It's a great career. So I went and interviewed, not expecting to get accepted uh, because it was kind of last minute. Uh, and I figured, and they said at the end of the interviews, they said, when can you come? 
I said, I'm going to just take it as a, as a year just to learn about the profession. Because, you know, when you learn about pathology in medical school, it's very different than how you practice as a pathologist. Yeah, I can imagine. So I just, I kind of sat back and just enjoyed the learning rather than really being um, stressed out about it. You know, a lot of people get stressed out about the learning. And so that first year of residency in pathology was just to introduce me to the world of pathology as, as a profession. Thereafter, I did a, a fine needle aspiration clinic. It's just part of one of the rotations in cytopathology, mm. which is kind of cells in space. It's like what you see in pap smears or urines or fluids. And one of the thing was fine needle aspirations, which is actually doing a small needle biopsy. Uh, and then you smear it on a slide and you look under the microscope and you determine what the person has. So it's the smallest amount of tissue that you can get. It's got to be comfortable for the patient. It's well, it's it's much more comfortable than having to have a surgery. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so at first, when I first looked at it, I thought, "What is this? Cells in space? I can't understand it." But when it clicked, I was like, "Wow, this is really cool." And I really, I always liked doing procedures at, at, during medical school. I was very good at surgery. But I didn't see myself as a surgeon because I didn't like the the work life balance. In fact, they I did you know those people who did well in surgery had at the end of the year a, a dinner, and so if you if you did well, you were invited to this dinner. And I was sat I was one of the only women at the dinner, and I was sat with all the female surgeons there. And they said, "So are you going into surgery?" And I said, "Well, I kind of want to have a family." And, the, and one of them joked, like, what about surrogacy? And I was like, oh, my God, this is not for me. <laughs> Come on. No, no, I mean, obviously, this is different now. But back yeah. then, you know, this is what, you know, they were. Anyway, not, not there were there were surgeons who had many kids. But I'm just saying that, you know, there's surgery is a, a certain way. And you kind of have to devote your life to the hospital and, and that. And it, it kind of, I think, having a family until you're established as a surgeon kind of it takes a long time and, and it, it goes by the wayside. So I wanted to make sure that I had, I wa- that was very important to me. I wanted to have a family and I wanted to have something that I really enjoyed doing and waking up. I mean, how many people don't even have that realization and then wake up 15 years later and they're like, wow, I really missed out on something and I didn't even yeah. listen to my heart during that time. And also kudos for you to realize really fast, I don't like this whole patient interaction managing diabetes and all these different things all the time. Like what a great thing to figure out now versus. Yeah. You know what? It wasn't the patient interaction per se, because I like that part. Mm. It was, you know, internal medicine. It's a different way of thinking of things. I'm, I'm a visual person, like as an artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, So pathology was, I mean, knowing pathology is basically the study of human disease. So as a pathologist, pathologists are considered the doctor's doctor. So, all the doctors come to us for the answers. You, yeah, you send off blood samples to the lab. We're the laboratorians. We tell you whether you have high cholesterol or we tell you if you, have, you know, if your CBC is off or if you have leukemia. or. You have the most stressful part. We take the biopsy and yeah. then we're like, all right, pass the buck on to somebody else to tell me what kind it is. Kind of, yes. <clears throat> like so, a chiropractor. Hey, we got something on MRI. I don't know what it is. Send it to the radiologist. Now it's on them. Tell me what it is so we can refer it around. It's yeah, like, that's right. a lot of pressure. It is. It can be. It can be. There's a lot of learning, but it's very interesting. 
that I also, I, I, it's anatomic pathology is very visual. So it's all about pattern recognition. When I was in medical school, the chief of pathology used to, back then they were slide carousels. So they would put up the slides of different things and he would intersperse like the picture of the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal, Mount Fuji. And you would he would say, okay, where is this? And we'd say Paris or India or, you know, uh, Japan. He's like, yes, because you can recognize that this is a pattern. Like this is the Eiffel Tower and that belongs in Paris. So anatomic mm. pathology is very similar to that. You know, uh, all the things have a pattern. And from that pattern recognition, you can make a, a, a certain di diagnosis. When you see so, it enough, you see it. Exactly. So if you don't have a good eye, or then a lot of pathologists, anatomic pathologists, are artistic. They have it because they it's they're just drawn to that and they're drawn to that kind it's of. Really, you fit right in. <laughs> it's kind of like that hidden calling that you didn't right even know up, was there. Yeah. You're like, yeah. oh, yeah. Where's that on the uh, professional matchmaking? When I was in my second year of of residency, a, a guy came and he said, "Oh, I have a standalone fine needle aspiration clinic." And I thought, wow, I love that. And that's what I'm going to do. So that's what I, that's what I did. I, I went and pursued having a private practice as a pathologist. And when I first started out and I would go and do networking with other local clinicians in the area, they would say, what? You're a pathologist and you have your own clinic? Like you see patients? Cause most, you know, most yeah. pathologists only see thought of as like, looking at parts or autopsies. So Right. So let me ask you this. Um, Pre-talk, you had mentioned there's only like 12 private practices. So I'm curious as to... I don't know how many exactly, but about a dozen. But definitely not enough to, to serve the amount of people that probably need it. So are you able to cross state lines or just have multiple licenses? Or is it just like so out there to have your own clinic? I mean, do you take insurance? Is it a cash thing? Or... So many questions about that. What do you think? Because it sounds like a great business idea, too. Because There aren't. But the issue is I'm in Los Angeles. And in West Los Angeles, there are at least three large hospitals that profess excellent care just within 10 miles. So like Houston might be one of those places then. I'm just saying like Los Angeles, there's, you know, St. John's, there's UCLA, and there's Cedars all within 10 miles of my clinic. Oh, okay. I'm... I'm I'm competing with them and they're competing with me. People can go and have a fine needle aspiration biopsy by anybody who can, it has an MD by their name. Oh. Whether they get diagnostic material, that's a different story. So oh. when I first started out, you know, I worked at the VA, I ran the FNA clinic there, but I also was a staff pathologist. And so we would get FNA smears from endocrinologists, from ENTs, from surgeons. And most of them were barely readable. We would try our hardest because the clinicians would get upset. Like, what? You don't have enough material or you can't read it? Or when I first started out in private practice, I would have endocrinologists send me their biopsies. Like, they would do the biopsy. They would see the patient. They would do the biopsy. And then they would send me their slides. And I would have to look through 40 bloody slides to get, like, a couple of cells. And that would take a lot of time. Yeah. They don't realize if you're not a cytopathologist or even a pathologist, most other doctors don't quite understand or realize what it takes to get a good sample. They think, oh, if I have a syringe and I pull my syringe and I get blood, that means it's going to be a good sample. But in actuality, 
blood is obscuring, especially for thyroid biopsies, I want to get as little blood as possible with as much cells and make sure that it's fixed immediately and that the smear is correct. And the other thing that they cannot do, which is, I mean, like I can't do surgery. I mean, I learned it you know, in medical school, but I'm a pathologist and I read these all the time. I have a microscope right in the same room with the patient. So when I do the biopsy, I smear it and I stain one of the slides immediately. The rest I fix and I look at it right there. The patient's mm -hmm. on the table and I'm looking at the slide and I can say, oh, I need more material because later on I need to make a better diagnosis or I need more material because I know I need to send it for another type of test. I had a patient once, he was referred to me because he had a uh, rapidly growing thyroid mass. And of course, he was of that age, he was over 70, and clinicians immediately think it's the worst kind of cancer. Most thyroid cancers are not bad. Most people do not die of them. But there's one type that's usually in the elderly, and it grows like literally overnight, and it kills people within a year. Like there's wow. nothing to be done. It's called anaplastic thyroid cancer. And so the patient was immediately sent to me. And when I looked at it, it's called on-site evaluation of the slide or rose rapid on-site evaluation. I saw that it wasn't made up of thyroid cells, but rather made up of lymphocytes, the same kind of cells that are seen in your lymph nodes or in the bloodstream. And so it dawned on me, I, th I thought maybe this could be, uh, I mean, there are inflammatory situations in the thyroid, but this looks more like it could be a lymphoma. So at that point, I took more material, I went back, and I put it in a special medium that could be sent for another test for flow cytometry, which is to rule in or rule out lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And what, lo and behold, the patient had lymphoma and not anaplastic thyroid cancer. So the patient, if he had gone to either a radiologist or an endocrinologist or an ENT, that sample would have been sent to the lab in, let's say, a hospital or Quest or LabCorp. They would have said atypical cells or lymphocytes present, go back. So they said it anyway. They would have not. They would have not been able to make a diagnosis immediately, and the patient would have to go back for a second biopsy, or they could have missed it all altogether. But this way, it was like a one. It's a one-stop shop. The patient is able to go only once, get a biopsy only once, get the answer, and the patient never had to have surgery. The patient went directly for chemotherapy and nice. was fine. Yes. So in that way, as a pathologist, cytopathologist, I am able to look at the material. Immediately, you know, in real life, right? To ensure not only that I have a diagnostic sample, so that the patient doesn't have to come back, because oftentimes it's missed. There's too much blood, or if I do need to send the sample for something else, like I could send it for molecular studies, I could send it for flow cytometry, I can send it for, let's say, microbiology. Let's say I look at it and it looks. Someone comes in with a lymph node. I do a biopsy of a swollen lymph node, and it looks like there's an infection. I can send it for culture. Mm. I've diagnosed TB twice. When they, patients have come to me, they, the doctor said, oh, I think it's a lymphoma, and actually they had TB. That's wild. So I guess would one of the take-home messages for today be, if you're a doctor that can actually do these things, obviously I'm a chiropractor and whatnot, so obviously I'm not, I don't do that, but the audience is bigger than me. When we're looking for a pathologist, can we request a cytopathologist versus just a regular pathologist? So you just get who you get. Generally, uh, out there, let's say, Let's say you find a lump on your body. 
you go to your, your primary care doctor. He's like, okay, well, I know this great, let's say, endocrinologist. Let's say they find a thyroid nodule. The endocrinologist may or may not have had experience in doing thyroid ultrasounds, most likely had, and doing FNAs. The problem is, is they may be a brilliant endocrinologist, like, don't ask me how to manage your diabetes or, you know, I don't know how to, like, deal with hormones. I know of it, but I don't know how to, like, treat you. And they try and do the biopsy themselves because the referring, the, your primary care physician knows them as a person and thinks they're a smart person. But the fact that they can't look at the microscope themselves and they don't know what really it entails to make a perfect smear, uh, it makes my job harder if I'm on the receiving end, you know, um, mm. in the laboratory. I mean, I've been actually an expert witness for, for cases, you know, that have gone to court. You know, right. patients have sued and, you know, sued the pathologist. And, and, and it's not necessarily the pathologist's fault. It's the pathologist doesn't get, like, like I said. A good sample. It's too much blood or whatever. Well, sometimes, you know, the person who's performing the biopsy, I can teach anybody to perform, perform a biopsy. You just stick a needle into something. I mean, that's all it is. It really. Right. Uh, the skill is being able to get diagnostic material. And the only way that you know Aside from the feel and having like expertise, like knowing how to do a biopsy well, is also being able to look at it and make sure that you've done a good sample and how to fix it well. Could they do a CE to, I mean, you've got to take continuing education. Are they able to do some sort of biopsy refresher course? Well, they don't know what they're, they're not pathologists. They don't look under the microscope. They, I mean, let's say endocrinologists, they, they look at thyroid samples. Sure. They do that in their, in their fellowship. They do it. There's some endocrinologists that profess that they're just as good as any pathologist, but this is not what they do. I mean, this right. is, this is so not, their ego probably wouldn't allow them to some, some of them. I'm just saying, you know, and, and, and part of, let's say ENT, like when I was at UCLA and training at UCLA, we used to do conferences, pathology, otolaryngology conferences, and they learned how to read recognize what certain things look like, but it's like a, a tiny bit of their education, most of their education and most of their training. And, and then years later on, uh, based on their specialty. Mm -hmm. And and as you go on, I mean, I'm not doing general pathology. I mean, yes, I can go back and probably read GI, you know, biopsies, but that's not my specialty anymore. You know, like I, right. it's there, but now I'm doing cytology mostly. And so that's my expertise. Like I can look I see a gajillion thyroids. I do a lot of thyroid FNAs. I do a lot of head and neck tumors. I know how to, I know, you know, like this is like my bread and butter. And so you get better and better at it. And it's not just, it's not just being able to know how to make the sample and how to read the sample at the side, the, you know, the microscope, you know, using the microscope in a certain way and knowing that it's everything else. It's, 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 you know, I'm a hybrid between, the clinician, like the surgeon and the internist and the endocrinologist and a pathologist. So my background in internal medicine has helped me in being able to be with patients and look at them as holistic, you know, their problems in a holistic way. I have the advantage over my pathology colleagues in that I get to see the patients and I actually get to feel them. You know what I mean? When you're in the laboratory and you're just receiving the slides, you may get on a requisition form like 35-year-old, you know, Caucasian male with a two-year history of a one-centimeter thyroid nodule. And that's all. 
Right. But when I see patients, I get to talk to them and I give, I get a focused history and physical. I, I ask how long it's been there. Does it bother them? Are they hoarse? Do they have a family history? Oh yeah. My mom had goiter and my, you know, late cousin had died of papillary carcinoma of the thyroid or, oh, I'm, I, you know, yes, I survived Chernobyl. I, you know, <laughs> that, you know, there are things that those mild details, like what am I looking at and why am I looking at this? Yeah. I mean, I've had interesting cases. I had a man who had a thyroid nodule for many, many years. And in his remote history, 20 years prior, he had uh, kidney cancer, renal cell carcinoma. So when I did the biopsy, it looked strange. And so there's a nomenclature that cytopathology and pathologists use. And so part of that nomenclature was, you know, atypia. And so I sent it out and it came back and I sent it out for molecular studies. And the molecular studies came back that it was metastatic kidney cancer. Wow. And the referring doctor couldn't believe it. So that, that nodule has been there for so long. I can't imagine it's not goiter or thyroid nodule. And so he asked me to do it again. So I did the biopsy again. And this time I, I took more material so I could actually stain the material in a certain way to prove whether it's thyroid origin or whether it's kidney origin. And it turned out again to be kidney. I see my head goes... The fact that there's that many tests and that many stains that you can do that is pretty cool to me. That's really cool. You know, obviously there is, there's different materials. In. And, and things are getting much more like granular as, as medicine is going forward. You know, we're able to diagnose things on smaller and smaller samples, which is why as a cytopathologist, it's very exciting. I can do fine needle aspirations and it's, it's minimally harmful to the patient. It's a tiny needle. It's like a smaller than the kind that you use to draw blood with. It's like mm-hmm. between that and a Botox needle. And instead of going in, in the old days, they used to cut everybody out. They cut out things. And we're finding things that are smaller and smaller because our imaging modalities are better. We Our ultrasounds are getting better. People are getting MRIs. You know, it's getting much clearer. And the other thing is we're able to do things with small samples and small cell, cell samples because we have like molecular techniques. These are like more and more molecular techniques. Like one of the things that I use um, quite often is if I can't tell, sometimes there's diagnosing something that's benign is easy. Diagnosing something that's cancer is easy. The things that are in between is what makes me sweat. You know, Ah. like I like makes me like, you know, like I sit there and I ponder it forever and ever. And I'm lucky that in, let's say, thyroid, I could send it off for molecular studies and now they're looking at all the different permutations and, and chromosomal aberrations, genetic problems that My could goodness. lead to cancer. Yes. And it's expanded. I mean, it's constantly expanding. It makes you wonder what we were doing 30 years ago. It used to be that people would come, you know, let's say thyroid cancer. You'd have to have a big, huge squitter. And they would say, oh, I see that. <laughs> Let's cut it out. And, and the problem is that most of them are benign. And the treatment's probably better now, too. If you can get to that glandular level of what exactly it is, you can probably tailor the treatment to exactly what that is instead of guessing and hoping. Uh, things are, are going that way. It's called immune therapy, like in, in lung cancer. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of things like Keytruda and things that are advertised on TV. Those are cancer diagnostics, and which is my bread and butter, but and therapeutics are getting better and better and less harmful to the entire body. So, you know, they're looking at ways to kind of 
instead of destroying everything, like with just a big shotgun, you know, getting a, like a, you know, sharpshooter in there. Well, we had a couple of patients this week who were talking about their spouses and they were doing chemo and they had the chemo fog afterwards. They're like, my husband was completely useless. Like, <laughs> couldn't remember anything. And I was like, well, I heard it fades over time, but they're like, yeah, but during the time frame, it was bad. But um, switching gears a little. So if you're doing private practice, what are you doing to market? Now, maybe you don't have to do it as much now. You got a name for yourself, but oh, I still when have you were to kind work. of starting out, you still have to do it. What are you doing? What's working? I don't know. I, w- I, wish, I, had, I wish Yeah. I, you know what? The best, the best way, I, I've tried all different kinds of ways. At first, going doctor to doctor. I mean, I, I do have a reputation. I'd say most ENTs and a lot of internists and endocrinologists know me. No of me. You don't need everyone to refer to you, but you do need a certain amount I to do. keep your schedule full. Yeah, I'd like more. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say most of the like a lot. I know because I'm in this area. I'd say all of the concierge doctors know me and refer to me. So I see. That's huge. Uh, you know, I also work at, for the county of Los Angeles in South Central Los Angeles for the underserved. I work at Martin mm. Luther King Jr. Outpatient Clinic doing exactly this. I was recruited by the chief of endocrinology. And so I see all walks of life. And some of those doctors also have private practices and they refer me patients. When I'm training my, like my assistant is like, you know, everybody, everybody gets anxious. Everybody comes in thinking that they have cancer when most, most of the time they don't, but everybody has that thought. And so you, everybody has to be like sensitive to it and people react differently. You know, you have to, you have to be sensitive to it. So how do I market? The best method is going is meeting the doctors up front. I mean, going and introducing myself. Uh, I used to have someone who used to market for me. She was much more organized than I was. <laughs> she had all these Excel spreadsheets. Uh, so I did, helpful. I, yeah, I did direct mail. It's very expensive. I don't know how much. Although some some doctors were like, oh yeah, I remember your postcard. I'm trying to fax. Uh, I'm, now I'm trying to get into like social media and Instagram. I don't know how much that's helping. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you, you, have, got, a, you got a unique challenge, uh, I would say. <laughs> Part of the challenge is educating other doctors, referring doctors, that someone like me exists because mm-hmm. they just don't. I've never heard of someone like me. And the other challenge, and that's the other thing that I want to reach out to the public, is I want to change the paradigm. For now, you have to be referred to me by a doctor. Oh. There's a prescription, right? You can't walk. I'm like a radiologist. You can't walk into a radiology suite and say, like, hey, I want an x-ray. You have to get a prescription or a referral, just like you can't walk into a um, pharmacy and say, I want an antibiotic. You need to have a prescription. But, and, or, but I want to change the paradigm, the kind of paradigm that's being changed already in the past 30 years. It used to be... You never saw advertising for drugs in magazines or on TV, right? Mm-hmm. But now, because there's, you can't go in and say, I want Keytruda, you have to go to your doctor and the doctor has to write your prescription. And that's what I want to do. I want to reach the public because I feel that nowadays the public's much more skeptical and much more in control of their own health care and their health care choices. Before, I think medicine was much more paternalistic. And now people are much more questioning, and I feel that uh, they can have access to superior medicine. And to someone like me, they just need to know about me and be able to ask their doctor. So I have gotten people from the Internet as well. 
You know, I record an interview tomorrow with the author who describes sort of the downfall and the reason why everything is so expensive with healthcare in America. And they talking. He he mentioned things like what you just said about um, direct access and some of these prescriptions that we have to have, and just kind of the whole. There's lots of little rabbit holes that you know that interview might take because you look at it and you're like, we should be able to go and get an MRI, if we're, especially if we're willing to pay for it out of pocket. But well, you still have to get that prescription. And well, because people don't understand. I think, yeah. I, I mean, something as simple as I have a nodule, uh, I, I know I have a nodule, I think it needs to be biopsied. And if your doctor's saying, oh, you're going to go to the, my friend, the endocrinologist to biopsy it, you can say, he's already referring you for, it's like saying, you need to go and get a mammogram, okay? I'm already uh-huh. writing your prescription to get a mammogram, but you can choose with that prescription where you go and get your mammogram. You don't have to go in the same office building as your doctor. You can go to wherever... And people don't realize that, I don't think, either. Uh, a lot of people here in Los Angeles, they choose where they want to go and get their mammograms. They're not okay. no longer going just next door. They're like, I want to go to an academic center. I want to go to UCLA for my mammogram. Or I want to go to Cedars. I want to go to Tower. Yes, they take their prescription. or The prescription gets actually faxed to that radiology center or mammogram center. And they choose. The patients choose. So that's what I want, eventually. I want patients to be able to say, hey... This is a better way, and I want to choose that way, rather than just depending on where their doctor happens to be sending them. You know, it's kind of fun to be enlightened by this. Every profession, as a chiropractor, of course, we're like, hey, you know, the uh, case management actually recommends us and PT and doesn't recommend these drugs. Actually, it's really a better physical modality is the best option, yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, when you've been doing it for a long time, you're like, um, headaches, that's like my bread and butter. We should be one of the first choices that you pick. Not that person, but me, you know, (laughs) and like every profession, it seems to have that like a podiatrist. Wait, send them to me. Don't send me. Don't send them to the ortho. And like it's it's fun to see that even you have to deal with some of that stuff as well in a different aspect. But it's I think I think still educating so much. I think because there's so much overlap in your field for a very, very long time. There are I mean, a lot of doctors still I'm still meeting doctors, even on the West Side, who are like, what? I've never heard of that. I've never heard of a pathologist actually seeing patients and and doing biopsies and you know yeah. also having a laboratory you know in one under one roof like one stop shop. Well, here's my card. Here's my script pad. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's just part of it. But I I want to be able to reach a broader audience. You know, I want to be able to give good, excellent, superior care. I believe that everybody deserves it, regardless of where they are. And do you have staff? I do. It's very small. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do they handle more uh, scheduling or like back end stuff? They everything. They're you know jack of all trades. Ah yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Maximize their potential. Yes. Yes. I have a, I have a sonographer. I have a, you know an ultrasound tech who helps me with that because usually in a lot of settings, let's say people who do fine needle aspirations, they have a nurse, and let's say a radiologist is doing the biopsy and they usually have a sonographer with them, even though they're radiologists, and then they have someone else smear the slides. I'm the pathologist. I'm the laboratory professional. I want to smear my own slides. I have control over that. I want to have, I want to have good, clear slides because I know I need to read them later on yeah. and I need to make a diagnosis out of them. Indeed. Well, let's switch gears. I want to respect your time and, and the audience and everything. One of my favorite questions is uh, we talk about relationships and you have a, a spouse and we always want to keep the love alive and not end up divorced and have a happy marriage. So do you have any tips or advice on what we can do for that? 
I met my husband right before I started medical school. So it's been 28 years, and we've been married for 24. We have three children. And this is the one that we did the Chinese medicine uh-huh. degree earlier. Okay. Wow. He's a hospital administrator. He didn't really pursue acupuncture and herbology. He does it kind of on the side, but doesn't really do that. That's kind of a big deal too. You can't just uh, get that job. You yeah. Earn that one. Yeah. He's been working. Yeah. He's been working for a while. You know what? I think you can't be on cruise control. You know. I think a lot of men, you know, once they get married, they kind of get get into cruise control. And I think women are kind of, you know, the prodders a little bit more. But, you know, we're real partners, I think. We engage each other in partnership. And, you know, occasionally when there are issues, we go into, you know, group family therapy. When I want to hammer something out, I feel like I need a third person to present it so it doesn't sound like Lucy of the Peanuts, you know, wah, 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 you know, like, you know. Yeah, it's a safe environment to really air out the grievances sometimes. Well, I just think that women are a lot of times seen as, you know, when they when we have complaints, we're seen as nagging. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, you hit a wall with that. You, it doesn't, it, it's, you can't get anywhere with someone just pushes that aside, something that's bothersome. You know, we've gone through a lot together. I think we respect each other and, you know, we want to strive to be better for each other. Two strong professionals. Two careers that actually take up a lot of time. You had, you had a couple kids, right? You said three. Three. So how did? It's always the sexist question. So how did that play out? Where uh, the the roles of child rearing typically fall on the women, especially a, a few years back there, and uh, you had a demanding job. Oh, let me tell you, that's one of the reasons why you know, like that's that, that's like a. What do you do? How does that work? How do you shuffle all of these things? Women got the short end of the stick, at least in my generation. Okay, my generation. Gen X. You still got to do 95% of the child care and go to work. Gen X, we had to become professionals. My mom was like, you have to become a profession. What if something happens? Yeah, well, it was, no, it was like all of my friends, half of all of my friends that I grew up with are professionals. Half of them are doctors. I have a lawyer, a businesswoman. Uh, they all have masters, at least, if not doctorates. These are friends I grew up with from elementary school and high school. For me, I always knew I wanted to have family and children. I, that was first and foremost, and that my career was always secondary in my head. You can't really go through medical school and residency without some sort of sacrifice. And I did have help. I mean, we had to pay for child care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went into a profession knowing that I didn't want to spend all my life doing, you know, my work and that I want to be present and which is one of the reasons why I work part-time I I carved this out like my way of working I may not earn as much as my colleagues they probably I earn like maybe a half what they do but that's because I want to be flexible have a flexible schedule I, I crafted it this way I really it was very very important and life by design life by design you know my kids don't get to go to Europe every summer and stay in hotels uh, and we stay in Airbnbs, you know, instead. But we still get to experience life. I think it's really important. Um, I think, you know, travel and culture. I grew up traveling. My family, half of my family lives in Europe. I, I believe in, in experiencing life and I, I never skimped on that. These are the choices that I, I had to make and I'm, and I'm actually very happy about yeah i mean i love that because i'm with you i even as a guy 
I don't want to spend all my time at work. I want to spend time with my kid. I want to not have to put in the hour, you know, 50 hours, 60, 70 hours a week. Cause I was like, what's going to happen? Like, she's only going to be this age at one time. And pretty soon yes. there'll be teenagers that not even want to deal with me. And then I, okay, oh, cool. Let don't, me tell you, my, I got other things I want to do too. Yeah. Two of my two oldest kids are actually uh, moving out in, in the fall. They're both, oh. you know, my one is going into a master's program in New York and the other one is starting college. And so he'll, and then my youngest one is still in middle school, but you know, I can't believe it. They've been like a nuclear family for so long and now all of a sudden they're, they're leaving the nest. It's going to be kind of a shocker all at once. Uh, but I also, it was really important for me to be doing something that I truly loved. I love what I do. And I think I'm because of it. And just because of all the things together, like I'm good at what I do, I think I'm the best. I'm one of the best, probably, at least in California, of, of this, of, you know, what I do. That's great. That's what's cool is when you know you're good and then you, there's nobody that really can compete. It's just like, I'm not being cocky. It's just we have a small playing field and I, I've worked so hard. Yeah, but it's also an important, I think, uh, example to, to, to have to lead for your, for your children to know that. So that they see a parent who feels their self-worth in the world, that you're giving back in some way. And also... You can be happy at a job. happy at a job, yes. Because... I may imagine that. You know, so many people don't even have the luxury of being happy at a job, much less... Uh, what, do you have a webpage or anything for people to con- contact you? My webpage is www.com. DrNadelman.com, so D-R-N-A-D-E-L-M-A-N.com, and my Instagram is at Dr. Cancer Answer, D-R Cancer Answer. I just want to thank you so much for for being on the show and, and enlightening us on what you do, because that is definitely a profession that needs more. Like I said, it needs to be highlighted. It needs to be promoted. I hope that we see that change over the next five to 10 years, and uh, of course, if you can get some more connections from this, that's a great thing too. But check out her Instagram. I'm pretty sure she's going to have some amazing stuff there. I didn't get to check it out yet. But uh, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good night. Another great interview has ended. While you're on your phone, click that review button. Write up a nice review for me. Five stars if you could. As everyone says in the industry, it'll help other people to find us when we have enough rankings. Not to mention, I'll mention you and your review on an upcoming episode. If you're looking for one sheets, if you're looking for all the books that people have recommended, you can just go to a doctorsperspective.net slash guide. And that's going to give you everything you need to know. The top episodes of 2017 and 2018, the podiatry series, dentist, acupuncture series, holiday 2017, financial series, how to write a review, how to support the show, like buying a cup of coffee, getting swag, like t-shirts. The Today's Choices Tomorrow's Health book, that's the blueprints for better health, exercise, picking food correctly, and financial. And then, of course, bundle packs, which can get you the no-needle acupuncture book, 40 common conditions, including the electric acupuncture pin, at a great deal. Page has some of the products that I like. It's uh, affiliate style, so if you buy something from them, I get a piece of that. Just like on the show notes pages, if you buy a book from clicking that link, I get a small piece of that as well. So I really appreciate that. Things like Screencast-O-Matic, Pure VPN, Missing Letter, JLab Speakers, ProLone Edge or Hawk Grips, 
The trilingual coloring book is now five languages, English, Spanish, Chinese, German, and French. So pick one up for your own kids, your nieces and nephews, and also for your office so these kids have something to do. Again, that all-encompassing one link is adoptersperspective.net slash guide, G-U-I-D-E. Once again, if you do need any coaching on how to improve some of your blood work, drop weight, and the Prolone Diet, Fast Mimicking Diet, five-day plan, let me know, as well as if you just need some coaching, whether it's health, whether it's marketing, whether you need some practice growth, etc. reach out, Facebook, Justin Trosclair, MCC. Of course, at a doctorsperspective.net on the top right, you got all the social media icons that you can imagine. Click your favorite and reach out. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tell a friend, pass it along. You can go to .net slash listen. It's just that easy. It'll open up right in your app. And don't forget, I appreciate you. Listen, critically think, and integrate. See you on the mini-sodes. Hope you're enjoying those. I'm definitely having fun summarizing these podcasts in less than 10 minutes for you. You get the nuggets without having to waste your time. Have a great week.